millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He ko nai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ with me, Alison Balance. Last month, the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge held a conference in Wellington called Crazy and Ambitious. That name is a quote from the late Sir Paul Callaghan, who, shortly before his death in 2012, suggested that getting rid of introduced predators on mainland New Zealand could be our equivalent of the Apollo moon landing. Let's get rid of the lot, he said. Let's get rid of all the damn mustelids, all the rats, all the possums from the mainland islands of New Zealand. He went on to say, it's crazy and ambitious, but I think it might be worth a shot. Since then, the goal of a predator-free New Zealand by 2050 has been officially announced by the government and a range of organisations have become involved in various ways. I chaired a panel discussion at the conference and we're going to hear some of that on the show tonight. Our topic was predator-free New Zealand, a dream or a reality. And after offering my own credentials as a suburban backyard rat trapper, I asked each of the five expert panellists whether they thought the concept of getting rid of rats, possums and stoats from New Zealand by 2050 was a dream or a reality. Here's Campbell Leckie, Land Services Manager at Hawke's Bay Regional Council, where he's involved in a number of large predator-free projects. So without just being socially acceptable for this forum, I definitely think it's a reality. And partly for me, that's around uh, the technology which we are going to need to get there. If you look at the technological changes our society has gone through in the last even 40 years, that the technology curve is massive. And so the ability to have technology to drive the things we're after is, uh, I believe, is absolutely there. I think the comment I'd make, though, is that actually, for me at least, Probably only 20% of this is about the technology, uh, 80% of it's about the people. Uh, and so for me, it's a reality, but only if we can get the people part of the picture right. Uh, and for me, that really comes down a lot to just how much are we investing in the people part of the picture, as opposed to the technology and operational delivery part of the picture. Bruce Warburton is a vertebrate pest biologist at Manaki Whenua Landcare Research. I think it is a dream if we're strictly believe by 2050 we're going to eradicate seven species, three species of rats, three species of mustelids and possums from all of New Zealand. I believe that's a dream. But when you have a dream you wake up and there's three possible outcomes. The first is that dream could become a reality and again I don't think that is going to be a reality by 2050. I'm not saying further out it may, may become a reality. You could wake up and it might become a nightmare, and I think there is a small probability of that happening. And the third possibility is you could wake up to a different reality, and I think that's where we need to be, 
and we need to agree on what that reality might be. And it might be something like we make Otago Peninsula, Banks Peninsula, Mahia Peninsula, Coromandel Peninsula, or even Northland predator-free by 2050. And I think that is ambitious, but it's not crazy. And I think it might be achievable, and there'll be a hell of a lot to learn in that process. But to actually think we can do mainland New Zealand, I think that's a dream. Nicola Torkey is the Threatened Species Ambassador for the Department of Conservation. I do think it is a dream we can make reality. I do think, though, we need to have a bit of a reality sandwich in how we go about it. And what I mean by that is we will require transformative change. So that means not just a ramped-up version of BAU. It means actually rethinking everything that we're doing and how. I agree with Campbell that it is almost entirely about the people, and I suspect part of the issue is we've thought about this and framed it in such a way that it's predator-free is the thing we're going to do, the problem we're going to solve is we're going to get rid of the predators. We're not thinking about it in terms of our natural, cultural, health, well-being, education package of who we are as New Zealanders. So I think a little bit of reframing in the public. Sean Ogilvie is part of the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge. He's Director of Eco Research Associates Limited and Māori Business Development Research Consultant for the Cawthorne Institute. Kia ora koutou. I was thinking about this question before and I think if I put my crazy and ambitious mind on, which, was really what, which is really the challenge, I think that, I've, that, it's a, that it's a reality and we should give it a really good go. Um, I just want to add something to, to what Campbell said and I think, well actually and what Bruce said as well, um, yeah, I think by 2050 maybe we're going to need a little bit more time than that but we're probably going to discuss that a bit more. Um, but also I kind of agree with Campbell about the, the, the technology side of it being maybe 20% of the equation and it's the people side of it's really the, 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 a key part of it. Um, but I kind of like to think we can link them together and I want to talk, uh, just mention some work that I've been involved with with actually Will Allen who's down the back there but that's around co-design of technologies the technologies, that, technologies are designed with the communities at hand so just putting that out there is something I think which is a key part of it, so kia ora Devin McLean chairs Predator Free New Zealand and he's involved in Project Yansoon and the Next Foundation I don't get hung up about this question, it's not a reality today but it's a very valuable dream to have out there uh, I'd like to think it's not going to take that long. Uh, it would be nice to shorten it up. I know there's a few others in this audience who would, uh, would take the same perspective. There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of them is we've got enormous changes coming in the form of uh, climate change, and it's going to be very difficult in year th- year, decades three or four from here to, uh, to muster the resources for a lot of this kind of work. If governments are distracted trying to shift airports and highways and people and so on, so there's a huge job to be done now. Uh, we've got many of the tools in place. The technology is moving quite quickly. And I'm always um, fascinated and inspired by the way communities react when you actually sit down in their place and talk to them about what the prize is for them and what the uh, tools are that need to be used or what the approaches are that need to be used. And my experience on four landscape-scale projects now is that when people see what it's valuable, how valuable it is to them, for all sorts of reasons when they buy into it. On the other side of that, um, just going back to my backyard trapping group, which is the Mount Vic predator-free group, so if you're at the back there and you look out the window, you can look across to part of our area. And 
<clears throat> I've leafletted almost all the houses that you can see there, and after dropping thousands of leaflets in people's letterboxes, we've managed to sign up 350 households in the four suburbs around the Mount Vic town belt, um, which sounds fine and it sounds like a good start, but when you go online you realise that most of those people aren't logging anything. So does that mean they're actually even still trapping? Do they get a trap, think it was a great idea, and the first half a rat they caught, they went, nah, this is not for me. Are they not catching anything? Are they catching stuff but just not telling us? Um, and the rest of the people, they're just not interested. They have different priorities. A lot of them are renters. They're only there for a short term. They're the big block of people, I think, in New Zealand who you would describe as having apathy. So there's, yes, there's some really committed people, but how do you get to those people who are the ones who go, yeah, whatever, got some other priorities in my life at the moment? You drink lots of cups of tea. Uh, if I go back to the example of the Abel Tasman uh, National Park uh, and the opposition uh, against 1080 in the Golden Bay community, was right, which was right alongside that, I spent a year sitting in the coffee not quite literally the whole year, but over a year in the tea rooms of, uh, of um, Golden Bay and in the, in, the, in the homes there, talking to people about what the prize would be at the end of the day if they were willing to give us the opportunity to do that. Um, today we're dropping the third lot of pre-feed, so there have been two 1080 operations in the National Park, another one going down shortly, and uh, if there's any opposition today, it'll, it'll be very slight. Um, so... It's about the conversation in the place. It's about what's in it for them as a community. And it's about giving them the assurances they need about the methodology and, and, uh, and if, if necessary, involving them directly in observing the process. One thing that stands out for me in this whole conversation, there's a, there's a very wooliness around people's vocabulary. And predator-free 2050, to me, means eradication. That's 100% kill. That's not sustained control. And New Zealand are world leaders in doing sustained control. You look at Osprey and the TB management program, large areas, you know, region-wide sustained control that, that Campbell's been involved with, Cape to City and elsewhere. They are exemplary pest control management programs, but they're not eradication. And I think there's very few examples of community groups that have actually eradicated. And there's a huge difference between getting a 98% cool and 100% kill. We can get 90, 95, 98% kills with 1080 operations for $30, $40 a hectare. To get a 100% kill, all our eradication attempts on islands and that cost $200,000, $500,000 a hectare. We can't afford to do that over the mainland, e even, even if we had the social licence to do it. Yeah, and the only way to reduce the cost is to find some self-disseminating mechanism, and we don't have that at the moment. And I doubt if we'll get that developed by 2050. We might do it later than that, but that's the challenge. How do we get something that's self-disseminating so the cost per hectare is affordable? There's something in here about story, and maybe perhaps part of the reason that your wider communities haven't engaged is they don't get what's at stake. We haven't adequately explained what we've lost, what we're losing, what we'll lose tomorrow, and we haven't done it in a way that doesn't entirely bum them out and gives them a sense of hope and action and something to do. And so... The other thing I think we need to think about are people's values. So for me, as a fourth generation from 
Scottish and British immigrants. My values are around getting rid of the introduced predators because uh, I want to save the native birds. But if I'm a recent immigrant from somewhere in China, I'm perhaps really interested in spiritual places, places where I can think about and reflect on what's important to me in my my inner soul, temples, for example. But there's no reason that we couldn't make a case to the Chinese community, for example, that their local patch of bush might be their temple. And if that's the case, how do you look after it? So I do think there's some ways that we could engage more broadly with the New Zealand community and when it comes to Māori, whakapapa, obviously. So, yes, that's expensive today, but maybe not tomorrow. I think there are different challenges embedded within predator-free. I think towns and cities are one challenge vast rural agricultural landscapes or another. Do you want to talk to that, Campbell? I know you're working in that space in Hawke's Bay. It was really great to see Bruce Clarkson yesterday talking about the urban landscapes uh, because ultimately the urban landscapes, the rural landscapes or the deep bush landscapes, we've got to get the solution for all of those, that's obvious. The farm landscape definitely brings different challenges but in some ways I was saying to the team the other day actually I'm, I'm really grateful because actually in the farm landscape it's incredibly rare to have to use tools like 1080. So actually in terms of contentiousness and things like that, it's relatively straightforward. I want to just come back to that point I made. So, And this is something we've learned in the last probably five or six years about the not just the farm landscape, it's across all of those different things, and that is actually if it's about the people, if 80% of the solution or a large chunk of the solution is about the people, and then if I look at our own project or even my organisation and I look at the investment we make, now, yes, I'm part of an operational delivery team, uh, but even if I look broadly across the organisation, the total investment of the organisation into education and engagement around the environment, if I was generous, uh, is probably 10 to 15%. And that's, frankly, if I was generous, it's probably quite a bit less than that. So for me, it's actually about whether you're in the farmland landscape uh, or the deep bush setting or in the urban area, and particularly urban and rural have a, a higher people component, What's your level of investment in the people part of the picture? Because I would say if it's not at least 25%, we are probably missing the mark. How much of this really can be bottom-up versus top-down? And I'm thinking predator-free Wellington, even Miramar Peninsula, has, has, it's not really a bottom-up thing because the council is running Miramar predator-free at the moment. Do you want to talk to that, Devon? Predator-free Wellington is running predator-free Miramar, which is a consortium. I think it's absolutely critical that you've got that bottom-up component, but it's really interesting, you know, you hear the stories of community groups that worked really hard with their trapping programs, and it was all exciting when they could compare notes at the end of the week about how many rats they got, and then they get to the point where nobody's caught one for a month, and you start to go downhill. But at that point, you're nowhere near eradication. And uh, so the challenge for us in these projects is to build on that community support, to take it as far as it can at the right time to be able to switch it over to to essentially a professionally run operation to to demonstrate we can get to the eradication point. And Bruce is quite right, we haven't done it yet anywhere, even in the the, uh, secured uh, fence sanctuaries where we have probably succeeded, we've had reinvasions, and we know we're always going to have that as a challenge, so our methodology's got to be very smart about dealing with that last 1% or half a percent. Even if you get rid of them the first time, you know uh, there's a risk that they're going to come back. It's all, all got to be part of the package. But I would suggest that if you think it can't be done, you're right. Has the wider programme so far been inclusive of all voices and communities, do we think? And how are we going to change that in the future? My answer to that is, no disrespect, team, but take a look at this panel. 
I'm not sure if we're inclusive of the wider voices of the community. <laughs> I think there's a lot of work to be done. But acknowledging that, being able to acknowledge and embrace that and think of ways of, you know, who's, who is missing on this panel and how do we get them here, I think sets us on the right track. I think the short answer is, for me at least, if I'm talking about our projects and the context I've been involved in for the last decade, the answer is no. Uh, but there's actually a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, so when you kick off these very large-scale landscape projects, there's all sorts of things going on. And I think about Whakatupu Mahi at the moment. Firstly, we had Pautere Otane, then we had Cape to City, then we had Whakatupu Mahi. It's really only in Whakatupu Mahi where we've actually got the, the sequencing of things right. And we've got, for example, Rongamai Wahini Iwi right there at the governance and project team and, and really involved in helping to drive things. And we've actually got the farmers there uh, as well prepared to sign up. So I think for a variety of reasons we don't always get it right, but the, the key for me from the last 10 years is actually probably stop the operational bus a little bit and just before you can get all that stuff underway actually try and get the conversation going in the community. Really easy to say though when you've got a funding bid deadline and you've got a whole bunch of things going on, it's very easy to say but actually it's challenging to, to sometimes integrate them all. Sean, there was a couple of lovely examples last night on the final panel of yesterday about people looking for what motivated them as a community about why they suddenly realised they needed to do something. Yeah, so I think if I can add a, I guess, Māori perspective of a Māori layer on the discussion, and it does follow on from the panel last night, and that's that around the motivations, I, I mentioned the Kiwi Protection Programme that I've done some work with in the past with, with Tuhoi, and the motivations there are individuals are pretty strongly motivated around a sense of protection of, of whakapapa because they're looking at the Kiwi, and the Kiwi is seen as a tuakana, so an elder sibling. And so if you were to lose your older sibling, that's a pretty horrible thing for us, so we kind of go to all extents to make sure that that doesn't happen. So I guess there's this, there's this vision of, of sitting at the hospital bed with your older sibling there, not well, and you know, you're going to go to all extents to make sure that that situation's fixed up, and I think kind of delving into those values, and I'm, you know, there's other value sets that are probably equally as strong, or maybe equally as strong, but delving into those value sets to get, in, get motivation, and behind thinking large, thinking crazy, thinking ambitious, is um, a really important part of, of, of the whole picture. What do you each see as the biggest challenge to this? Well, I think it's the coalescing of the critical elements in there, so we've got to have the technology in place, we've got to have the, um, the community uh, support, the community licence, we've got to have the resourcing in place. And I think pulling those all together is critical. And I, as, I, as I keep saying, I don't see that as a national thing. I see that as quite a local thing, defining it in place and, and dealing with the folk there who care about that place and who are willing to, to make the effort to make the contribution in that place. Yeah, I think it is about that connection and everyone kind of getting in behind. If I zoom in on the technology side of things, I think something that's been kind of a recurring question is that we as, if I, if I can put me into that group, we as technology developers kind of go into a corner somewhere and come up with what we think is an amazing technology. And even if it's absolutely like 99% foolproof, if you, if you take it out there and it's not acceptable, well, you, you kind of, the technology's failed, really. And it's about how we get around that. And I think, I think that's one of the key things. So it's about somehow, and this is a bit aspirational and I don't really have the answer, but it's about how you get to a position where the communities that are doing the hard yards on the ground 
actually have a sense of ownership of the technology. I think that's what we kind of need to aim for. And like I say, that's a bit of a bit of a dream, really. But I think that's a that's a key part of where we need to get to. You've heard us all talk about the complexity, and in particular the complexity of the interactions with people, with groups, with communities, with iwi, with science. And to me, that is the greatest challenge. So how do you harness the complexity and drive everybody's individual aspirations for the shared outcome in a way where each person gets that sense of ownership? without feeling like it's been foisted upon them by some greater outfit. If you're someone who think, likes to think a lot about ecosystems, and I suspect there may be a few of you in the room, the ecosystem of the people involved in this and the complex and interconnected web, the nature web, if you like, of ideas and technology, weaving that together is, is the greatest challenge. For me, I think it's just clarifying what we actually want and what we want to achieve. And I think several speakers mentioned theory of change and logic models. So in a logic model, your top outcome might be towards or predator-free 2050, and I think we all would aspire to that. We all want that. But we need some intermediate outcomes, and we don't have those. So we need some leadership in this space. We need a national strategy to lead that. And until we have that, we just have this sort of disparate sort of actions going on all over the place and nothing pulling that together. And I think that's what we really need at this time is some leadership. From my point of view, I'd like to, to just pay an acknowledgement to the, to the Biological Heritage and National Science Challenge because one of the things that's really strong in there is, is, an, is an attempt to defragment the, the whole situation yeah, just from my experience working with them, I think that there is a, a, a serious intention to do that. Partly for me, the greatest challenge is about how we frame the conversation around PF 2050. Uh, and I'll be really blunt, from my point of view, it's actually not about predator pests. Particularly when you go out to our communities, killing predators is just one means of achieving a whole bunch of other things for them. So for me, PF 2050 is about how we're framing a conversation around... Uh, a different sort of community, a community that's involved uh, collectively a whole lot more, but it's also a community of focusing on killing predators because they want to get all these other things done. And so for me, the challenge is if we focus too much on predators, uh, while that's the mechanism to get to where we want to be around the outcomes, it's not actually the thing uh, which the community are focusing on as what they value per se. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pānaki a papatuanuku, tangaroa, mei rangi nui. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. You're listening to a panel of five experts debate the question, predator-free New Zealand, dream or reality? So we've talked a lot about people. Let's talk a little bit about technology. We've got existing tools and techniques. Is it just a matter of scaling those up? Do we need a magic bullet, and what might that look like? From my point of view, I'd think the magic bullet idea is something that's not really realistic. I mean, there, there isn't a magic bullet. And I think the risk of thinking about magic bullets is that you, that you take effort away from other things. I mean, it's an old adage, but I think we need to be thinking across the whole toolbox of tools that we have and also be thinking about innovative new ones to add to the toolbox. Yeah, from a, an investment point of view, you want to diversify your portfolio, right? You don't want to throw all your cash after one particular 
uh, thing because the risk is too high. So yes, we should be investing in new technology. Yes, we should be ramping up the technology we, we already have and looking in corners for other things. But to just follow one idea and hear off down a path and miss the world of opportunities to the, to the side of us, I think it would create a lot of loss. There's a constant process of tech scan going on at the moment between the Science Challenge, Spirit of Free 2050, the Department, Osprey and others, and gradually we're starting to link those up so that, that scanning is being done by the folk who've got a perspective over the whole thing. To me, the big gains in the last short while have been using conventional tools that actually turned out to be quite useful when they were combined with smart communications and some refinement on them. And so we've made leaps and bounds, I think, on some of those critical tools. But I don't think that's enough yet. I think we've, we've got to get into the AI space. We need devices out there that can tell us what's going on precisely and then combine that with an ability to deal with what's out there at that point in time. You know, there's lots of discussion at the moment about thermal technologies for detecting and scanning. We don't need scanning technology when we've got thousands of possums out there. We sure as heck need it when we've got ten possums out there and we're trying to get the last few. And that applies to uh, other species that we might be interested in, including goats and other things at some stage. We've got to solve those problems. But that work's starting to come together, and the, the access to technology that's been applied in other fields, often in the military field, for example, for some of those, is now becoming readily available in our hands. We've just got to get smart about how we use it. We are improving our technologies, and we are scaling up, but we're not really addressing that hard nut on how to significantly reduce that cost per hectare and that's what we've got to get to to achieve eradication affordably. And the other part to that sort of comment is I don't know what affordable is. Nobody I don't think's worked out what's the expenditure do we well investment we need to actually achieve predator free twenty fifty. I mean, there's been some attempts. I think there's nine billion and thirty billions at the top end. What does that equate to a cost per hectare that we'd need to get our tools down to, and it would give us a target to to work to? Because some of the new technologies, like um, wireless and thermal, that's actually increasing the cost often in terms of the cost per hectare, not decreasing the cost. That's a traditional way of accounting that we seem to have done with pest control in New Zealand where we only account for one side of the ledger. So what is the cost of not doing it? So what is the cost for clean air, fresh water, education, mental health? We haven't really investigated the costs on the other side of the ledger and balanced them up. That's right. And a paper by James and, and Andrea and Pike Brown... I think they estimated the $9 billion, and they looked at the costs and benefits, and the benefits, I think, outweighed the costs. So if that's the case, why, why aren't we out there doing it? And I, I think those costs are up front, and people don't like spending those costs when the benefits are a bit more obscure, the model's a bit uncertain, and the benefits are accrue in the future. So you, you can sort of weigh the costs and benefits up, but maybe humans aren't always rational. I don't think that the development is constrained by cost at the moment. Um, it may be in the future when we do get to the stage of going to a very large-scale application, but right now what I see is costs coming down pretty much everywhere we're looking, and a lot of that's to do with the technology taking labour out. 
if somebody's got to walk uh, a trap line uh, every day on the off chance that they've caught something in a, a live capture device or to keep it working, uh, that costs you a lot of money. The work that Zero Invasive Predators has done uh, with the operation of uh, leg hold traps, which happen to be a very good way of catching possums, and they now operate a thousand leg hold traps that uh, report in every night onto a cell phone and it's taken 95% of the labour cost out. That's not always good in terms of some of the other agendas in this space about rural employment and so on, but it's going to be part of the reality if we're going to deliver this outcome. And the reason we're using wireless technology is because we're using leg hold traps, which are sort of designed in the 17th century. And we've got to, you know, so we've got this really modern technology on one hand, putting it with yeah. such old technology, it's embarrassing. We've got to get more innovative in the traps that we're using so we don't need to rely on wireless technology. I remember a time when we changed our Kiwi monitoring to take eggs from the wild, from people walking into the bush for two weeks every night to find whether or not the, it was time to take the egg to flying over it in half an hour and making 45 ranger days in half an hour. And at the time, I also remember that my colleagues who were Kiwi rangers being terrified that that was going to be the end of their amazing career. But all it did was allow them to do way more, or way less. I'm just going to throw to a couple of the questions that have come from the floor. So to all the panellists, do they consider that this level of scientific literacy among the media that includes me, is adequate to competently articulate the issues around predator-free? And if not, what do you suggest as a solution? I'll say no. As I said before, I think there's, there's some wooliness around sustained control and eradication, and that's not clearly articulated in the media, and it's not clearly understood by communities. You hear people say, I've got a 98% eradication. I mean, it's just an absolute nonsense. It's, it's like 99% germ-free. Yeah, or virginity or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, so, so I think, yes, there needs to be a, an increase in literacy. I consider there to be quite a high standard of scientific literacy amongst the media in New Zealand. Some of them are in this room. That doesn't mean it's across the board. What I would challenge you all to today is do you consider that your responsibility to competently articulate the issues around predator free in a way that the media and the public can understand it that is evidence based is your skill set there because if you invest the time I mean I once made a poor journalist cry because she wanted to do a story about an obese possum in a German zoo and it was and tie it to 1080 and I just convinced her that if she did that would be the end of her journalistic career <laughs> but it took a lot of time to get there it takes a lot of time to explain what we're aiming for and why if you're talking to a journalist and, you, and you're thinking idiot You've done yourself and the scientific community a disservice. Um, so what do I suggest as a solution? Get to know the Science Media Centre, for example, and make friends with some good scientifically literate journalists because they're hungry for stories and they will tell them well if you help them. Another part of the solution is embedding them in the projects. Yes. Get them out there to see what's actually happening, not what they're reading in the newspaper or hearing on the, on the grapevine around the community, but take them out there. It's something that we do a lot of and we should do more of. So my answer would be no, uh, often, although obviously it varies wildly depending on the um, journalists or the media you're talking about. 
But I guess also for me too, the reality is often the, in the media context you're looking for both the story, but actually you're looking for the angle on the story and creating media interest around that because actually that's part of your job. And I think sometimes while they can get part of the story right, some of the detail right, they then frame it in a way which provides that other angle which sometimes can actually be a little inaccurate depending on the context. It's understandable it needs to be an angle so people that are interested in the, in the articles, but I think maybe a little bit more effort to, to not have the angle being something that's just so controversial that people just switch off the whole idea. It's about maybe finding more positive angles and, and kind of having, having journalism that's kind of living the, the crazy and ambitious dream, if I can put it that way. So, so uh, spending more time on, on, on bringing us all together as a country around particular ideas. I'm thinking about 1080. I mean, over the years of, you know, some of the journalism around 1080, it's like, oh, God, that's, there's an angle there that's obviously been designed to make people read it, but it's actually not particularly constructive. Speaking of 1080, are toxins like 1080 an important tool in this battle? Yeah, absolutely, yep. I mean, it's just the way it is, the tools that we have um, in terms of, of cost-effective knockdown, of, well, especially we're talking about possums, 1080 is pretty much, you know, the, the, the best one that we have. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing a whole lot of work on alternatives. I've been involved in a bit of work around alternatives, and one of the realities that came to us working with a, with a Māori community um, after doing quite a few years around some alternatives to 1080 was that We've got to, we're going to have to do some pretty amazing research, if we're just talking about toxins, to come up with something that, actually, that we know more about, that we can actually evidence-based say hand on heart that it's, that it's better. Um, so it's a big journey. Yes, absolutely, and not just in terms of the effectiveness of knockdown of predators, but we are increasingly getting some amazing results in terms of the uh, benefits to our native biodiversity. So if you think about this year and the 21-year Landsborough study, mohua were the most commonly encountered bird. Now that is a turn-up for the books. Kōkaku and the Hunua Rangers, the results speak for themselves. And so telling the stories of not just what we nailed, but also what we made will be important too. I agree with that. I mean, 1080 is the main toolbox for controlling possums, rats and stoats over large areas of our rugged terrain and it will be in the short to medium term. Fortunately there's some research going on at Manaki Whenua looking at species selective toxins, you know, gene sort of based, it's not GM but it's just looking at gene switches, you know, if that comes to fruition there'll be another suite of tools in the toolbox and, and hopefully 1080 will disappear eventually. So I completely agree. I think, too, for me, though, again, it comes down to thinking about it a little differently. So if you look at some of the work that the ZIP team is doing around using 1080 to eradicate possums, for example, so you're not then going in back every, whatever it is, five to seven years, having to reapply because you've got a suppression environment, you've actually eradicated them, you don't need to go back again necessarily for that tool. I think being able to take that sort of step forward with a tool like 1080 is going to be really valuable when we can do that. Can we just quickly digress? Nicola, I know that DOC's predator-free strategy is currently being discussed and will be released shortly. Can you just quickly outline for me what it's looking like? It's a big piece of work and it will hopefully give us a bit of a platform for where to from here um, in terms of that moving to eradication, that transformative change, because we seem to be drifting back into suppression conversations. 
the difference between suppression and eradication is the shift in mindset, the transformative change we're making in our heads, and then once we've kind of gathered the the troops and, and headed down this journey together, exhilarating that. Like, it is entirely likely that much of the eradication will happen at the very last minute in a very short space of time. And so I I know the team have been working really hard on this, and I think you'll all be quite uh, heartened by where where we hope to go with you all. So under this current government, gene editing, gene drives are off the table. Uh, But can we do it without genetic techniques like these? I don't see gene technologies as being critical at this point. It would be a useful tool to have in the toolbox. Many of the species we're talking about, for various reasons, won't be susceptible in a time frame that's that's appropriate for what we're talking about. I can't imagine that anybody's going to let us have um, gene-edited possums running around, given that, that they're an endangered species just across the Tasman. The psychology of that will be too difficult to get to. We should be researching in this space. We should be following the work that's going on internationally, which we are, uh, and at some point we need to be participating. There's a real opportunity for New Zealand because of our unique situation uh, with no native mammals uh, to uh, actually operate uh, some of the early trial work, maybe on offshore islands or something like that, because, because other people just don't have that situation where there's nothing else potentially at risk in those locations. But it's too early to say how effective it's going to be. Nobody's done it for mammals yet, and uh, and the time frame is at least a decade to be really thinking about having something to deploy in a trial, let alone uh, start spreading around the landscape. I have a fear that that we've maybe been oversold what can be achieved with gene editing for mammals, and so I guess the positive side of that is it gives us more time maybe than we think to have a really good dialogue about it. And I think part of that dialogue too is that we do have some clear understanding about the techniques and what they really involve. So there's some work to be done there by those that in the know to kind of clearly communicate what we re- what's really being talked about. So from my perspective, I've been in the industry for a few years or a few decades, and I wouldn't consider myself to be uh, well-schooled on gene editing or genetic technologies. But um, history has got lots of examples of people saying, this stuff will work, it's safe. Uh, And then we found out, actually, it wasn't safe. Uh, And so from my starting point for this sort of stuff, and I'm in the industry, I'm passionate about this stuff. That's why I've made it my career. Uh, And I'm sitting here thinking, all good stuff, but actually you've got a long way to go to convince me. And if I'm sitting here passionate about it, having been in it as a career, and I'm thinking that, I'm thinking there's an awful long conversation to go on uh, with a whole lot of people out there about this. Thank you. Okay, we'll ask another question from the floor to all of the panellists. Once the seven predators are gone, do you think biodiversity decline will be halted? And what role does habitat restoration play? Yes, I think it will, but that doesn't mean that habitat restoration's not important. It'll be a part of it, particularly for landscapes like Cape to City, where you can restore lots of habitat and bring back you know, the wider sort of ecosystem's biodiversity. I think another thing in that space we have to think about is an increasing number of deer, and they're having an impact on particularly the forest understory. So we might be bringing the birds back, but that habitat is being modified by another species that we've sort of lost focus on. This is like an exercise in peeling the onions, right? 
once we deal with the first seven, the problems will start to become obvious. And um, you know, that's the time to have a conversation about cats. It's clearly going to be a time to have a conversation about hedgehogs in some environments. There are other species that are major problems, like rabbits that drive populations different places. So there are other, there are other targets down the way, but we've got to focus on something to begin with. And even seven can feel a bit unfocused from time to time, but the interactions there are pretty important. So I say, let's get the seven and then we'll worry. I agree with that, but I also want to lift it up a little bit. Um, so habitat restoration plays a really important role. And we're still thinking about this in terms of that narrow focus goal, getting rid of all the predators. If we're also equally thinking about restoring catchments from the mountains to the sea, and all of our streams have habitat alongside of them, and our fresh water is cleaner, there's more habitat for the animals, bloody blast, carbon sequestration, ability to adapt and mitigate climate change impacts. They're all really important parts of that that will interplay with each other. I also entirely agree, and I see it happening already, that once you take those sort of named predators out, we will start looking around at Mrs Tiggy Winkle and Puss Puss and start kind of scratching our heads and thinking about how we deal with that conversation. But actually for us, um, and all the predator trapping we're doing on farmland, for every mustelid we're catching, we're catching six to eight feral cats. Uh, and the message simply is this. If we don't take out the cats along with the mustelids and the possums, we're not going to get the outcome. It's that simple in, in our landscape. Uh, but to come back to the question around the habitat restoration, they are absolutely two key pillars to actually getting the end result. Because we can go and take all the uh, pests we like out of the landscape. And in, a, in a farmland landscape where there's 3 to 5% of the habitat left, uh, actually, if we don't start putting the habitat back now then we're going to get the pests gone. But as you said, Nikki, the actual species will struggle to have anywhere to thrive in. So for me, it's really simple. I have one more question for each of you. So what's the best lesson that you've each learned already from working in this area? It's a point that I've got to, which is fairly obvious, but I just want to say it. And that's around putting more effort into reconnecting with nature and doing that with your kids. I think that's the thing that's kind of struck me. And just to, I've got a 15-second th- anecdote. My um, nine-year-old just randomly in the car driving along, he, he'd been reading about climate change, and he just randomly said to me, hey, Dad, why don't we try and have a car-free month? And I, was, I just came up with why we couldn't do that. But then I was like, hang on. <laughs> then I'm like, hang on a minute. There's really good ideas from the next generation, and take them on board. So now I'm going to seriously think about how we might do that. <laughs> For me, the, uh, the answer would be spend time in the planning in the communities, make sure the communities help to co-design the project from the beginning. Any time you spend in, in those tea shops and, and in those uh, rooms talking to the communities to get the thing right and people on board at the beginning will pay dividends as the project progresses. The most important thing that I have learned is when you choose a goal... Everybody focuses that effort, right? That's why we talk about the moon landing. We wouldn't have had the focus on, for example, the Department of Conservation's work streams on predator control, building in MPIs, building in everybody else's talking to a wider community we probably hadn't engaged, engaged with before had we not all gone for this mad, crazy goal. And focusing our efforts has reduced our costs and increased the opportunity for us to tick this off. So that's, that's been the cool bit for me. For me, I think it's just becoming to realise that volunteers are a huge part of pest control in New Zealand and the sort of conservation movement, and that 
just the agencies by themselves won't achieve this, but the communities will. So I think they are really important. Yeah, so very um, similar in some ways to Bruce's, but we have an example in one of the projects we're working on at the moment. It's been going for about almost it's about a decade, Poteri Altane. And for me, probably the biggest lesson of the last 10 years involved in these large-scale projects is we have a massive opportunity to actually create leadership and, and facilitate leadership and support the leadership of the people in our communities out there. And in Poteri Altane, we had one example where one of the kaumatua basically started to run these hikoi to bring the hapu back to this particular place, um, mainland island boundary stream, and Poteri Altane as a project. Uh, and just watching um, and seeing our ability to actually, through our funds, to create and, and to have that uh, leadership be shown by them and to see the, how that genuinely made a difference for people... This sort of stuff you can talk about it sometimes and it's, you know, it almost sounds sort of really too touchy-feely, but it's been amazing to see how we can, in these projects, actually create and help empower that. A big thanks to the five experts who took part in the Predator Free New Zealand A Dream or Reality panel at the Crazy and Ambitious 2 conference held in Wellington in May. Campbell Leckie, Bruce Warburton, Nicola Toki, Sean Ogilvie and Devon McLean. The conference was organised by the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 20th of June 2019. To listen again, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. While you're there, why not sign up for our free weekly email newsletter? We are a free podcast and you can subscribe on your favourite app. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, plenty of others. You'll also find my other podcasts, Elemental and the Kakapo Files, there as well. Elemental is celebrating 150 years of the periodic table and the Kakapo Files is charting the ups and downs of an intensive conservation management programme for one of New Zealand's rarest birds. There are plenty of other podcast series from RNZ available at the Podcasts and Series page of rnz.co.nz. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Bye for now. Kia ora mai.